0: Hi, Nate. Hey, Tom. How are you? I've got some content for you. Again, we're we're adding some dynamism to the intro. Let me start from the top. What I wish someone had told me. Optimism, obsession, self-belief, raw horsepower, and personal connections are how things get started. Wow, we didn't even make it through one. Should we keep going? Yeah. Yeah, give me more. Cohesive teams, the right combination of calmness and urgency, and unreasonable commitment are how things get finished. Long-term orientation is in short supply. Try not to worry about what people think in the short term, which will get easier over time. (laughs) It is easier for a team to do a hard thing that really matters than to do an easy thing that doesn't really matter. Audacious ideas motivate people. Incentives yeah. or superpowers, set them carefully, or have none, <laughs> in this case. Concentrate your resources on a small number of high-conviction debts, like investing with the Saudis on a two-chip company. <laughs> this is an easy thing to say, but hard to do. You can delete more stuff than you think. Communicate clearly and concisely. Okay, for people who don't know, this is Sam Altman's end-of-year blog post saying the advice that he wished he got. We made it through six of them. I can't believe that he uh, communicate clearly in after this whole shit show that he caused by com- <laughs> communicating um, uncandidly. There's more in here. But this is just... Tom, what do you think of this? Is he an icon?
1: He's definitely an icon. It's interesting. I had not heard any of that prior to Nate reading it just now. It's not entirely surprising. Parts of it. I I've become more respectful than I used to be of aspects, specific aspects of startup culture, specifically about what it takes to have a vision. I hate to use that term with respect to Sam Ullman, (laughs) but what I, I think I respect the sentiment of what is it you were just saying about the fact that it's easier to get teams to do something really hard that feels like it matters than for them to do something easy that they don't perceive as mattering. I think that's true. And I think there's maybe a deeper lesson there about the incentives that we do kind of passively allow ourselves to fall into especially because we're so often just chasing the shiny object that's kind of right in front of us very few of us are willing or able to take a step back and ask ourselves what does another paper matter you know what does another model actually matter it's very easy to keep talking about the next thing as soon as it's deployed it's harder to kind of question a paradigm that you're in and a good visionary is somebody who a good visionary is somebody who is able to both get shit done but also step back and ask what is worth getting done and what am I willing to say no to
0: yeah I think this type of energy is being strangled by modern incent- like modern information ecosystems as I like I'm listening to the Steve Jobs book and it's like not to endorse a lot of the crazy things that he did but People don't work like that anymore, and I feel like AI being f- so frantic is making it increasingly hard. Like everyone is told that that's their time to like make their make their buck, so to say, or like it, it's it's like in a paradigm shift, the new voices rise to the top. I don't expect people in AI to take lo- as long as it really would. To let those voices settle. They're looking for the like okay who's here in three like three months is a long timeline to people where in reality these visionaries are on like a five-year trajectory. It's like is there anyone that can actually view like there's so few people that are viewing language models at that time frame right now.
1: Is this the Walter Isaacson biography? Yeah. That you were referring. Yeah. Would you recommend it? I'm actually not I'm listening to the
0: audiobook for free on Spotify, which is pretty nice. So I've been enjoying it. I I'm continually baffled by like it's not really a circus show, but like Apple is like a a deeply odd like there's deeply odd things that went down there. But I appreciate the like uniqueness that Steve Jobs had. Like he he is just out there pushing really hard in really specific directions and with such self-belief. Like, the belief things are where there's probably... I guess it's hard to know the extent that Sam Baldwin has such belief in what he is doing right now.
1: But Steve... That's like, an interesting way to put it. Yeah, I think that's probably right. There's something about... We explored this on a previous episode. There's something that said... I, I also hate to be a show, I mean, for any particular person... But I think there is something that set apart the temperament of somebody like Steve Jobs from even the people now who seem to either consciously or unconsciously style themselves after the model that he represented. So you don't style
0: yourself after Steve Jobs. You either are or you are not. And I think some of the people who are in that style are now disincentivized from expressing it. I don't think you can mm. I don't think you mm. can actively curate your life to have that level of like different convictions than the average person. It, it I just don't see how that happens. It's like a,
1: do you think part of that I've actually wondered about this. That's an interesting statement for several reasons, but to make it very grounded, do you think part of that has to do with the Uh, culture of AI specifically because Steve Jobs was someone who was so renowned and from what everything I've read anyway, somebody who prided himself so much on prioritizing the experience of the end user, right? It was sort of all about the interface. It was all about the product. It was all about the design. And I often have gotten the sense from having worked in or adjacent to AI for several years now, that in AI, it's almost a point of pride to not give a shit about the end product or the interface because it's all about the model and it's all about the capabilities and everything else is kind of almost deliberately an afterthought. And I think actually something may have been lost in translation there in a deeper way than we know how to articulate.
0: I think it's changing. I think the people that actually understand how people will use AI are going to rise through the crop. I think it's kind of where the field was. It was very academic and in both industry and the traditional academia. But mm-hmm. I do think that's really changing. It's like the difference mm-hmm. between people now that sit down and actually talk to language models or just look at numbers synthesized from various benchmarks. And the people who are actually talking to language models and a way of trying to be curious are so far ahead at understanding what the capabilities are and like what is actually happening because the numbers are not representative Someone sent me a, I found a website today that was, um, it's designed to see if you are smarter than a language model on this um, MMLU benchmark that is popular. So it just it lets you do it. And it tells you if the language models get this answer right. It's like, mm-hmm. even that, I would think it's like, most people aren't even just doing things like that. Like understanding what they know, and they don't know.
1: So this is also our year in review And we've already gotten fairly philosophical about that. But a year review can include several different things. It can include reflections on the past year, obviously, predictions for the next year, how we see the current state of play.
0: This is going to sound grandiose, but I kind of think all of the episodes of the retort that we have done are kind of just practice for what it might just seem like a crescendo of chaos and nonsense in 2024 approaching the election. It's... The same model releases and stuff are going to come and go. So the baseline energy is going to be there. But the ways by which these are deployed in probably morally gray ways are just going to increase throughout the election. And I, I don't think I really want to comment on the political parts of these things, but kind of just what it means for the tools. To exist in this space and what it means for like the tools to grow, by which that is going to be a domain that they're growing into. It's like not like it's an old tool, like recommender systems. That not that, that that's not that's old, but it's a, a developed science. It's just like a emerging science with such a high stakes political moment for a country is just likely going to be the most important thing to talk about.
1: My hot take on that might be that maybe this is my optimism coming through. I don't know. I wonder if the political dimension of it is going to catalyze the science rather than distract from it. I just because don't want to historically, energy into
0: the system. I'm just worried about adding more stimulus. But I, I do think that's a potential way that it could go, which would be, I would feel like I've done something with my life if I contribute
1: to that just a little bit. It's possible things might get so bad that, yeah, people feel pressure to slow it down or stop, either personally or because they get kind of shamed into it uh, from the wider zeitgeist. That's entirely possible. Um, like, there are literally
0: accounts it's also, on Instagram yeah. that are all AI-generated images.
1: Mm-hmm. Like,
0: these things already exist and people already don't know that they're AI-generated. Like, like, we're in, the, not, an, it's we're it's in the end game, so to say. Like, Mid-Journey V6 was announced today, which people say is not. better at photorealism than Dolly 3. That's just where, like, video models are coming. Thankfully, the video models are a little bit less clearly photorealistic.
1: We are headed towards some kind of reckoning, some kind of probably stigma, right? Because right now there's like no stigma against those accounts or against, you know, any number of other just willy nilly applications of these things. Cause it's still considered cute. It's still considered interesting. My Christmas letter last year, my wife and I as a joke used that just released chat to <laughs> to generate it. And I, I said to her at the time, I was like, we have to do it this year because every other year, this will not be cute to do, um, and Very I think that the wider kind of, uh, you know, public metabolic digestion of, of generative AI is still we're kind of getting to the saturation point, maybe now, but next year, partly due to politics, partly just due to the kind of natural filling out of this ecosystem. A combination of just been there done that and also this shit is horrifying is probably going to force some weird other kind of
0: well what do you think the you line know, some will kind be. of oscillation like i think that like people are still going to want generative ai for entertainment character ai type things it, ai generated like like ai generated i don't know like cooking videos or something on tiktok like that's harmless and it makes people happy, whether or not you think TikTok is a good for people's brain. Like there's plenty of AI generated stuff that'll make people happy. I'm playing with this on the blog. I'm using AI to expand the modalities just so more people can reach it. It's like I don't think that people are gonna turn against it that hard. But that would be I like, mean, if they do
1: and they're like none of this, that would be wild. <laughs> It's a great question. I don't have a good answer to it. My impulse is often to go back to history on this stuff, right So before yellow journalism in like the early in like the late 19th century What's yellow journalism oh, well, yellow journalism was this kind of emergent kind of property of like the media newspaper industry in the 19th century in America, which was that newspapers just started to make up things. To sell more copies like they just would say provocative things they'd have provocative headlines often without text like often without an actual story <laughs> There's some headline because people totally would buy it so bad people- now <laughs> <laughs> sure i mean it was it was bad it then. Was bad and then, and people bad yeah. people complained about it i mean some people blame this is sort of a, i think this is maybe not historians debate this but there was an argument that the spanish-american war itself may or may not have been catalyzed by yellow journalism. (laughs) That's because uh, there was a, was it the Maine, I think? The USS Maine exploded in the harbor of of Cuba, right? And um, there was this question, I think that happened, but then the yellow journalists argued like, oh, that's cause like the Spanish like blew it up you know and then it's i think it's debatable whether even that's that's true (laughs) or or what um but there was this rallying cry that i think william Randolph Hearst's papers were particularly famous for like shouting out this idea of like remember the main you know um and possibly building enough public you know opposition to spain or at least feeling like we should have more of a hand in in um you know latin america and the caribbean that we went to war with spain you know And um, that's dramatized in Citizen Kane, the movie, which is sort of a a rough adaptation of William Randolph Hearst, because there's a line in that movie where he says something like, um, what is the line that he says? It's something like, "You." he's saying this as as a newspaper tycoon, something like, you provide the military, I provide the war, or something like that, Um, stating something like, I, I'm able to create the pretext for the reality that will sell my papers. All you have to do is provide the pawns on which these things will move. Um, and I think that, anyway, the whole reason I thought of yellow journalism here was the, the reputation of the New York Times as the kind of like sterling exemplar of journalistic credibility really came out of that context. It wasn't like it was already seen as a gold star. It was really a combination of factors, but partly because the New York Times was willing to adopt standards for its reporting, that it was able to stand out in what was becoming a completely saturated market for bullshit. And gradually that made it trusted at least by elites and by, you know, after elites, the upper classes, and then from the upper classes, the middle classes, until eventually it became the kind of, as we say, paper of record. And it had that famous slogan at the top, all the news that's fit to print. The reason they added that was because there was, there was a lot of news that was not fit to print and they were differentiating themselves. Do they still have that that, headline? I believe, I don't know, but I believe in the print version they do. Uh, so it's kind of a joke, right? It's like it's all the news that's fit to print. So in the print version <laughs> it's, is only the news that's fit to print. I don't think the online copy has that anywhere, but I, I could th- be wrong about that.
0: I do think it's technically still there in some capacity. At the okay. top of the website doesn't have it. But that's not saying that much.
1: So in the print version, famously, it was at the top. Yeah. And it was in like a little box. Uh, anyway, my point is that this is hard to predict but it seems like we're going to head towards uh, an analogous kind of media saturation with generative AI. And out of that media saturation will have to be new protocols and standards for what is verifiable and what isn't. And once we kind of explore and somebody or some agency or some group is able to make credible claims to things that are verifiable well whoever does that is going to help set the standard for a post gen i notion of for lack of a better word truth public truth
0: yeah there's like uh, two timelines here neither of them are great i thought these aren't the only timelines but one of them is it gets so bad that there's a public reckoning which is like it would be i think this year and the other one is that it doesn't get so bad and then we never solve it so we're just permanently in the sea of not ever trusting anything and that it's like a long, slow slog through the never trusting. Both, like, I don't have a great
1: answer to that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, both are painful. It's probably going to be, well, I don't know. It's probably going to be somewhere in the middle. We're probably going to have a series of near crises, which collectively make the case for some new way of us grokking whatever shit we see online. Basically. Uh, Twitter has just become a kind of group of like 30 egos who just sort of hold court. And yeah. we sort of trust the them open because source they ones
0: are bad. It's very theological <laughs> on Twitter these days. A lot of, I'm, I'm like pro openness, but the people that are driving the narrative and open source, like I don't think that they're often right. There's this anonymous Twitter account that people think is run by somebody at OpenAI and just before this episode um, he quote tweeted one of the prominent open source people and he was like essentially the open source person was making a claim that I think is nonsensical as well. And he just said, I don't think this is remotely true, but it's hard to fight open source copium because people act like you shot a dog or something. And it is like kind of true. Like I'm one of the people now. I feel like regularly criticizing open source contributions, just because people say such stupid shit and like people say stupid shit on the other side of things too. But it's like, can we just
1: not? (laughs) Here's a prediction that it would be great if it bore out in 2024. It might not, but my prediction is that whatever this new kind of standard of verifiability will mean, will in part come from a serious reevaluation of open source. Not open source in the sense that it's like completely just let a thousand flowers bloom but also like something beyond the opacity and lack of disclosure that we've currently just tolerated from the gen AI ecosystem. There will probably have to be some emergent, uh, consensus around having community driven groups of people who either as annotators or as people who are collectively working on understanding how these models work, stand behind the way in which the model works in ways that there can still be some contingency in the output, but there's still a workable consensus-driven understanding of truth and what is verifiable, which is really the way Wikipedia works. We brought up Wikipedia before. We haven't figured out what that model is for Gen AI, but I think that something like that is still what's in the offing. When it'll come and how messy it'll be, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I'm kind of saying that there's a slow growing third theology, but like it's multiple branches of the openness. Well, most of the people making noise of saying that things should be open are like the Mark Andreessen techno optimist Marxists of the world. Well, I do think. I, I wish that more researchers and scientists would chime in as like the open science version, which is the type of people that want to do rigorous understanding of systems for transparency and accountability and don't give a shit that you can run a model on your laptop because they're all too in the weeds to not ever run a model on their laptop. They've got too much going on to do that. Which is their critical mm-hmm. flaw and also their critical advantage to not have to worry about this stuff. <laughs> so that's like, I'm now in the open science meme corner of the world rather than open models. But yeah, it's a distinction that matters. I think this has been the year, 2023 has been the year when these theologies of ML have been established. It's like AI safety had their moment in the sun this ai alliance thing that we talked about which is really funny the techno optimist marks part thing like the eac movement with these anon accounts and stuff and like there's even one that was called like ai optimist which is another branch so There's just like it just breeds like trying to stake your intellectual territory
1: so again like what because one theme of our discussions, of course, has been alchemy and the parallels between where AI is now and what alchemy was, and what under what was the spirit of it. And this year, in review, I'm confident saying has borne out the parallel uh, to alchemy. Now, it is also true that historically, alchemy did die; it did stop; it it was changed. But it didn't change in just one direction, right? The most obvious direction it changed was it became science, right? So alchemy became chemistry. Parts it became physics. Parts it became thermodynamics. You know, it kind of branched off in different directions. Mechanisms became better understood and also more understandable. And laboratories were created, experiments were done. So a lot of the kind of spiritual stuff uh, evaporated for the sake of reproducibility, controlled experiments, peer review, yada, yada, yada. But the other direction alchemy went was, for lack of a better word, politics. Alchemy only really made sense when there was a very small group of people who claimed to have a supernatural window into reality without having to really account for why. (laughs) And uh, both modern science and modern politics are opposed to that view. Science because you're accountable to your peers, politics because you're accountable to those whom you represent, basically, Uh, in some kind of representational voting maybe sense, right? Different governments can disagree on the mechanisms there, but the point is that's a different kind of calculus that is not alchemical. It is mechanistic. And I think we are going to have to find a way for the culture of AI to transmute itself into being probably both more scientific and more political, not in the sense of toxic, but in the sense of meaningful dissent, uh, trusted standards by which consensus can be arrived at, uh, reclaiming the ability to have debates in public that don't regress into name calling, deliberation, right? I hate to be nostalgic about this, but, like, there used to be a time when you could more or less trust in these processes as getting you somewhere other than where you started. My perception is that's not true anymore.
0: Wait, what do you mean by this? Like, you're only going to get where you start? In In what way?
1: Uh, in a, in a public conversation with someone who you don't know you disagree with in advance or you don't know that you agree with in advance, right? So like you have your views, somebody else has their views. Is it possible for you to have a discussion on those views where you either find common ground at the end of it, or you at least find a way to agree on where you disagree such that you leave the interaction. From a different mental place and maybe an emotional place than where you started,
0: and the point is that people just are locked in. We've got locked in syndrome.
1: People either seem to be locked in or they seem to take the wrong lessons from those interactions that they have online <laughs> uh, what well, well, I mean it's but a I'm little to of find subjective it. of you. <laughs> Well, let me, let me clarify what I mean by that. In a functional civil society, because this is what I'm describing is like, how does civil society work? What, what, are, what are the necessary ingredients for civil discourse and for civil society to operate, is where people who are not necessarily alike and don't share the same distribution of preferences or even of features that make them who they are are nevertheless able to interact peacefully And leave on peaceful terms. My concern right now is that, certainly on social media, people either come out of these interactions even more entrenched in the views and preferences they had beforehand, such that they've become more ossified, or they come away thinking that the other person is not only wrong but not worth taking seriously, like basically an enemy,
0: and not even just AI
1: people are just. Gonna, the walls
0: are taller in the AI space.
1: I think that that's the first thing I was describing. The second thing I was describing is people are more, are more inclined to dehumanize each other and see each other, see the opposing party as, 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 yeah, inhuman. <laughs> Everyone's talking something... about not humanizing
0: the language models, but the real problem is that we're not, hu- is um, that we don't have enough humanization of humans. Or <laughs> I could have said it more eloquently, but it's kind of where we're
1: at. I think that's right. I think actually the issue is we don't really know, we, we don't really have confidence in humanity anymore. We are encouraged, we are incentivized to have confidence in our own faction. Even though we don't really, at least not most of us, don't believe that our own faction is all of what humanity means. But we are incentivized to think that the other factions are inhuman or dehumanizing. So we sort of see our own faction as the bastion, then the spark of anything worth holding on to. I'm I'm just
0: very surprised that this is the timeline we've ended up as, because a large motivation of us starting the podcast was this kind of rift between that ethics and safety community. And like the ethics community, maybe I'm just not exposed to it, but in terms of like cultural weight of the conversation seems to be not driving it i think there's things that should be from what they're saying and there's and the ai safety people are totally driving it but that kind of what we saw as a rift is now just filled with so many other groups that stand in the way of that there's just too many little disagreements for a clear dichotomy
1: it's interesting it has been a kind of theme we you're right that one not the only motivation but one motivation we started these conversations with was how do we get past this like safety versus ethics tiff, if you want to call it that. What's been interesting over the past few months, you're right, is that additional factions have entered the chat, so to speak. And on top of which, I also think the media has begun to weigh in and started to tell its own narrative about what are the factions here, right? So. It was interesting to me that the coming out of the open AI stuff, a lot of the New York Times reporting in particular sort of characterized it as this fight between people who want to speed AI up versus people who want to slow AI down, which is like a different like yeah. vector calculus it did, it's than safety that, versus ethics.
0: Yeah. I mean, the acceleration messages do make a lot of noise. And I don't think safety people necessarily want to slow it down. Like, OpenAI's mission is not around slowing it down. They're heavily associated with safety. So it's like a specific subcorner of ness. While we're on the topic, did you see the news reporting from Politico that Rand, who was heavily involved in the executive order, and the people at Rand were
1: people with, like, EA AI safety links? Yeah, I saw that a while ago. Is this a recent story you're referring to? There is a, a kind of
0: story with more details mm-hmm.
1: essentially saying, like,
0: the executive order was underwritten by AI safety people through the RAND Corporation.
1: I see. Uh, I didn't see that. It's not surprising to me from other conversations I've been having uh, kind of interpersonally it's i mean it's also just not surprising i mean just for other reasons too right that's just sort of why think tanks exist right (laughs) so like it is it i hate to sorry i don't mean to make light of what this issue matters but like this is sort of like oh my god breaking news did you know that most laws are written by think tanks yeah i knew that that's not that's not surprising (laughs) The, the reason think tanks exist is largely to outsource the labor of just writing hundreds of pages worth of bills, and then we have legislators who, I mean, hopefully read them, but often don't even do that. They have staffers who read them and add them and annotate them. And them
0: I'm, I'm in the works, and to, then lead- to let to, to brief some congressional staffers on open source AI. I don't know what that means. I have to make sure, sure it's so not look,
1: lobbying, because I'm not allowed to lobby, <laughs> but. <laughs> we care. I, I just feel like we're in this weird moment where it's like, why are we upset about the fact that AI is political? Like, of course it is. Like, you can't pretend. Why is it weird? Why is it considered normal to build machines that super intelligent? I don't think we're upset that, that it's
0: political. I think we're upset that this is like the same big tech companies and or similar people that, are again, have all the power. I think that we're it's right. like... So if they're
1: put... People yeah. just
0: don't like the power distribution rather
1: than they don't like the fact that it's political. That's fair. Then we should start other think tanks. I think the point is like the rules of the game are just set up in a certain way. You either work at the Rand <laughs> corporation or you don't. So you can either compete for jobs there, or you can start a new think tank that is in a position to influence, or you, you can do something else, right? Like I've been spending a lot of time in DC lately, just because I realized at a certain point that I might as well to start going to the horse's mouth and just start like, <laughs> Uh, telling them what I think is that isn't the case. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not an asshole to happen
0: to me as well. I'm oh, yeah. I'm very open to all things like what is you what, what should I call it? Like being a good citizen with respect to my expertise. Just look at like I'm zero degrees removed from four or five people that have testified in Congress at this point. I could text them on the pod. Some might reply. It's like it's a very real thing. And there's plenty of people that I know of that are doing that that everyone in the field just thinks is kind of dumb. Um, these are the anti friend. What's the opposite of a friend of a pod? A, a publicly stated an a- enemy. An, an enemy. Of the- <laughs> enemy of the pod. <laughs> an enemy. I don't know pod, if we'll yeah. name any of them yet, but like there are people in that list that have also testified in front of Congress, and the amount of damage that I think that does is just so high on my shit that actually matters in the world meter like people going to congress and saying that ai isn't going to really change anything and we don't have to worry about it and we're just going to sing them this little lullaby song so they don't think critically is so actively harmful it's just like okay i'm willing to answer the call (laughs) call me up if we've got any senators on the pod guest on the pod
1: listeners list (laughs) it's something we should actually think about next year is having some actual like yeah policy people or congressional people on the pod which I would enjoy doing i think that would be kind of fun actually yeah we we've inherited i think a lesson of the last year beyond the retort has been that a lot of debates that either started in academia or that we assumed were the best version of them was in academia uh it turns out like the world doesn't really you don't care. The world moves at its own pace. If you have a job at the Rand Corporation, you get to write the executive order. If you run uh, It's going to be a catch open phrase, AI,
0: catchphrase of the pod going forward.
1: <laughs>
0: Are you employed at yeah, the, the Rand board. Corporation? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Well, you know, positions matter. And- well, as, as Sam Altman said, incentives matter.
1: Sure, but incentives are only uh, available to you and also um, you can only smell them depending on where you are. I think, yeah, that's the point. So yeah, I mean, you should you should engage with the world on its own terms in good faith as a means to push whatever you believe needs to happen. Uh, well, you can't just simulate the politics you want and expect the world to bow down to your parameters. That's just not how it works. It's weird I have to say that. But the culture of AI is so dissociative and so often abstract and scalar that we forget the fundamentally value-laden vector nature of reality. What reality do doesn't care. What do you think yet. the action of doing nothing means for
0: people in AI that are informed? Like how far can AI go or not like trying to participate in some sort of public engagement rather through policy or like, like like you don't like i don't yet think that everyone should have a public voice on social media or engage in policy but is there a point where like this is such a defining issue of our time that it is like it like professors that have tenure and could do whatever they want like do we think that moral convictions should compel people to ever participate in these things like can it get that bad
1: mm my hot take on that is professors who have tenure I, that might be a bad example, not, but like I well, I think they're not the most qualified and the reason I say that is not because I resent them or something. it's because I or I'm jealous or something. The reason is that they in in frankly like critical ways, are not in touch with the reality of the stakes of the politics of AI. I think that the people who are the, the experts who are more in touch with the stakes and the tensions, the conflicts that define the politics of AI would be somewhere on the spectrum of senior grad students to early career researchers. So and people post-docs, who are still have
0: the skin in the game. I was talking to my, Man, one of my managers, yeah. and he was like, I kind of hate hiring senior people because they have no skin in the game. Like, they've already made it on whatever they made it on, and it's just no fun to bring those people in, but there's like the people that still have to make it <laughs> are the ones that are going to drive the conversation around something new.
1: Because they don't have a choice. Yeah. I mean, and also because they are the ones who yeah, they, I mean, they have skin in the game. There are real stakes that they feel... Attached to, they don't matter to them in some abstract narcissistic sense.
0: Yeah, of like you like,
1: would upset my ego if I don't win this fight. It would be like, no, I, I, I need to fight for this idea because if I don't, <laughs> it'll come at a personal expense, and also maybe the expense of uh, my collaborators or my kids or my network, my community. Um, you're in touch with, you're in touch with the way in which the world of politics and the world of AI are running up against each other.
0: And part of my uh, career goal at AI2 is to make a large portion of the people there realize that that is them. Uh, openly, Allen Institute repre- like relative to the position that it holds, which is very unique, does not do enough. Like the people there could do a lot more. I'm not like it doesn't need to be everyone, but they're just like on average they just don't participate in the conversation as much as I think they should.
1: I think the same is probably true for the New York Academy of Sciences, where I work part-time as a consultant as well. Um, You know, it it also has kind of a, its brand is very neutral (laughs) with respect to debates within science and between the relationship, science and society, kind of that relationship. Uh, But it hasn't yet taken really kind of consequential steps into the AI space. I I think it should. I mean, I'm helping it lead that. And um, I think there's potential there. But yeah, I mean, this is sort of what what you and I from different positions are speaking to, I think, is that a lot of the problems with AI that have happened over the last year and that are probably going to get worse next year, one of the best remedies is civil society. We need to reactivate civil society. I think that AI researchers themselves need to realize that they are in it and the best way to work on these issues is to feed into that bloodstream get the blood flowing again because we've kind of acted like for the last i mean this is a larger point but for the last several decades like we could just keep it on autopilot we could just kind of keep these processes more or less in check and trust that some kind of you know uh you know centrist solution or or whatever would solve these sorts of issues but there is no such solution space for ai it's kind of all or nothing intrinsically
0: i have a a secret that i need to be quiet about in the space that's going to resolve everything the federal government is going to bail out twitter and it's going to be this civil society Not an original take. So yes, For friends, this would friends, be a fun... Sinan gave me this take, but it was just like perfectly triggering and also kind of relevant.
1: <laughs> so this would be fun if, if Twitter continues to lose advertisers to such a point that it does need to be propped up. It's like the postal service.
0: It delivers information but loses money.
1: <laughs> yeah, that actually would be awesome. Honestly, <laughs> I would change my relationship with it probably overnight i mean it's an, again it's incentives Ultimate it would do right. really we good keep
0: back. for uh, ai discourse because i think all the grifters would leave out of hatred
1: for the fact that it's a government thing but like i was <laughs> still like oh, okay <laughs> could be you'd still keep a lot of egos on it which is maybe that's just part of the price of entry i guess but yes if there was some kind of that's funny that after all these years the u s p s is the model that we return to for it could be it could be that would be funny uh yeah I mean it's lost a lot of value it's reaching that i mean in microcosm it is the crisis you could say it is um it's how bad things are it's a, it's it's one site where it manifests yeah, I don't know it'll be an interesting year I do think the election will be bad <laughs> I mean, it already is. I mean, that's the joke. Is that I think our podcast is really just going to turn into like, yeah, another like politics podcast. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, well, I, yeah, we need to be we need to be mindful of that that we have something distinctive to say about it. But frankly, yeah, I mean, my fear, which I've said before, mm-hmm. is that what's what we're who knows like for the week or two after the presidential election. There might be more misinformation, disinformation generated in that time span. I mean, than like ever before, because we won't, they legitimately, we won't know the result. And you'll see a number of photorealistic deepfakes of some election commissioner in Arizona, giving the election to like Grimace for McDonald's or something. And we just won't, we won't know what to think. And there will just be a, it'll be saturation. And that's not surprising because ultimately Reality is consensus driven and where there is no consensus, there can kind of be no shared reality.
0: Yeah. It's sad that AI is detracting from that, but that's where we're at. Is there
1: anything positive?
0: that we can predict or look forward to next year? I look forward to the open source people collectively losing their minds when they think that they've matched GPT-4 on performance because five numbers are the same, but in reality it's different because they don't know how to do RLHF like OpenAI does and it's going to be a big shit show, but I could see it coming from six months away. I'm looking forward to that shit show because i I going to give myself a pat on the back and be like, I was right.
1: uh it's good to have confidence in your predictions yeah i think that's
0: that's healthy this one is so easy Um, to see coming this is all yeah i'm also looking forward to it's all incentives unplugging more i've had my year of growing a twitter audience for no reason and now that elon has followed me for long enough my feed is almost unusable by bot spam so it's like, I just like, it's okay, bye.
1: <laughs> Strange world that we live in these days. Yeah. We can Any final... Do we want to cover any... What You're going to bake some cookies? Sounds like the right thing to take away from this. I've made gingerbread. I made a gingerbread house from scratch in 2020. Oh, like, yeah. I made the gingerbread, and then I made a house... I wrote... This is an adult. It's okay. This PG or it's radar. I wrote fuck 2020 on the back of it. So I like blurred out that when I sent photos to people. Um, (laughs) But that was cathartic for me. It's a cathartic exercise.
0: Yeah. We also got to record in sequence here. Um, I did see Godzilla at Tom's recommendation. Very good. I was because my family has watched the original Godzilla movies so much. I think there might just be one that's really popular. I was cracking up at the like weird. Godzilla nonsense I was laughing more than I probably should have been in the theater but great film highly recommended thank you for the recommendation the retort recommends
1: yeah we should do more yeah that that's our first endorsement Godzilla minus one I'm
0: reading Fei Fei Lee's book one of the best free AI books that I've gotten people now ship me books and I got this through work for free but her memoir is all about believing in her data centric view of ML and how ImageNet was so, the, the data set, was, ImageNet was a data set, was so ahead of its time. And it's good. It's a just a good memoir and relates to AI, which is most of the AI books that come out every year are just bad. So I've been enjoying that. This is her
1: recent, the yeah. recent one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alex yeah, I was just submitted,
0: it. so I'm at a, I'm at like a gripping point. Alex Nutt now exists. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the story of um, him being personally responsible, right? For he the the human benchmark, as they said, right? <laughs> originally, was. Yeah. how much? How long did it take him? I assume they tell that story like months yeah. till like, I go through it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Anyway, this was fun. We'll see everyone in the new year. Like, subscribe, carrier pigeon—you know the drill.
1: I have a a surprise before we go. Okay. Uh, this is called "Twas the Vibes Before Christmas," <laughs> a retort poem to close out the year. <laughs> are you Are you ready? Okay. "Twas the Vibes Before Christmas." when all across X, not a creature was posting, not even Gary Marcus. (laughs) 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 Companies had settled on scaling and money, while open source visions remained a bit funny. And Nate on the West Coast and I on the East had just given up as more models were released. When out in industry, there arose such a clatter I left Academe to see what was the matter. <laughs> the hot goths coming out of a private DM told me to check out Grok with a press of my phone. When what to my wondering eyes did it seem but instrumental convergence and eight tiny memes. With a little compiler so lively and spry, I knew in a moment, it must be AGI. <laughs> More rapid than eagles, its responses came, and it prompted and queried and called them by name. Now Elon, now Qstar, Bostrom, and Eliezer. On Timnit, on Schmargret, on (laughs) Meredith Whitaker. To the top of the feed, criticize me with gall. Now hype away, hype away, hype away all. So hour after hour, those memes held court even as others subscribed to the retort. <laughs> it's stochastic, said some. It's brilliant, claimed others. It all got reposted and all got their druthers. As I rolled my eyes and was about to sign out, in my inbox, Grok's AGI appeared with a shout. It was down to converse and fully multimodal. It beat me at 10 different versions of Wordle. <laughs> its replies, how they sparkled. It spared no expense. I could see how it put smart people on the defense. Why, I asked it, do you care about hype? Why seek more attention when it's all trite? It gave no response, kept itself in a shroud, though to all other queries, it made Pareto proud. And laying its finger aside of its nose and giving a nod, out of my DMs it rose. It called all out followers and gave them a mention I started to believe it truly was sentient. But I heard it exclaim one last line of respect. Remember to give the gift of interconnects. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to need to publish
0: this uh, on... April, new Year's Eve at midnight or something as well. So people listening still are going to get a double feature but I think we need to clip this and publish it as a standalone episode with no context and just say Merry Christmas <laughs> is the title.
1: <laughs> Sounds good. I wanted to get that in there. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll see everybody in the new year. Yeah. See how it goes.
0: Thanks for listening. Bye bye.
1: Bye everybody.